Good evening, everyone, and welcome to episode 10, the big 1-0 of the Retrospectors podcast. My name is Patrick Arthur, and I'm joined, as always, by my host, James Sterlings. How are you tonight, James? Yeah, pretty good. Episode 10's come around fast. We've only been doing this for a few months. How are you feeling about it? I am feeling fantastic, got lots of good feedback, have a small but steadily growing audience, which is what I always wanted. So um, I'm, I'm pumped. I'm particularly pumped because it's election night here and uh, down here <laughs> on the southern side of the world, but, uh, but I'm pumped about the cast and I'm, I'm keen to get into this episode. Yeah, and this podcast is not the only one you've been doing, right? Yes, um, I would like to give a shout out to Sweating the Small Stuff. They were kind enough to guest me over that podcast and I talked about and we talked about all of the uh, problems we have with video game villains. On, um, on that cast, it's basically an excuse to elaborately complain about the small things <laughs> that make you mad and uh, I got very mad about things that don't matter over on that channel. So I'll put a link to their show in the show notes and uh, if you want to go give them a listen and hear my petty complaints, I welcome you to do so. Well, I mean, you're the perfect guest for them, right? Because you just love complaining. <laughs> <laughs> I do. It's it's my favorite, favorite thing to do. Uh, and uh, we'll be getting into that in today's episode because uh, this week we are doing this game called, it's called Mega Man Battle Network 3. And James, this is a series that James absolutely adores. Apparently, there are either six or nine games in this series if you want to expand the definition a bit. But I had literally never heard of it before he uh, before he brought it up. So I, I maintain it's an obscure indie series, but James thinks otherwise. Yeah, I just think you didn't have a childhood. <laughs> hey, listen, my childhood was spent playing uh, Pokemon, not not Mega Man Battle Network. But I, I didn't have a Game Boy Advance, so so maybe that's why. So. Um, before we get into the game, uh, just a little note on what uh, we do here at the Retrospectives podcast. Our stated goal is that we're trying to review old games through a modern lens. So we want to try and figure out if the games of the past have stood the test of time and are worth playing today. What that means is that we don't forgive games for problems as we play through them, and we don't try and judge them as a product of their times. We're purely judging them on how good is the gameplay experience for us sitting down playing it today. With the idea behind that being, you only have so much time to play video games. The ones that have truly stood the test of time should be enjoyable for you today. And if you want to play those old games of today, just like you'd watch an old movie or read an old book, we're evaluating if it's up to snuff. So, as I said, the game of this week is Mega Man Battle Network 3, and it is a game that defies definition. I It took us quite a while to just figure out how to talk about this game, but the starting point that I have is that its gameplay is a blend of Pokemon, Hearthstone, and Undertale. <laughs> its story is like Harry Potter, but with science instead of magic. And some of its aesthetics, particularly when you start getting into the internet, is probably most similar to the movie Tron. But uh, yeah, it's a very weird blend of genres. Before we get into the plot, I just wanted to briefly talk to you about the fundamental premise of Mega Man, because immediately it struck me as being a bit bizarre. Because the outlandish premise of these games 
is that the internet is in everything. So the internet is in all these devices. It's in controlling doors. It's controlling fridges. There are control panels on vans. And as this was being explained to me, and as I was reading it, I was like, but the internet's in everything today. This isn't a weird outlandish premise at all. Is it though? There are USB ports, or at least the equivalent of them, in like literally every device in this universe. There's a USB port on your friggin' doghouse out the front, and your toaster, and just everything you can possibly imagine has a USB port in this game. In some ways that makes it feel even more archaic though, because in today's society we've moved to wireless technologies. I mean, Nowadays, you've got smart homes. You can control everything through your phone. And I'm sure everyone's seen the uh, the joke tweets about uh, people saying, I'm stuck inside my fridge, sent from Samsung fridge. So I, I really don't think that the world of Mega Man is necessarily more interneted up than our own. I mean, that's that's a minor thing ultimately, but, but it definitely threw me uh of course, like a lot of media from the 90s and 80s that deal with the internet, and even as late as 2002, I don't think they envisioned how interlinked we would be just 20 years later. Yeah, I mean, this was made in, what, 2002? The world that we live in now is very different, very different from when this game was created. Yeah, so that's the that's the premise. Um, to build on that... The idea is that the internet is so interwoven and everything that we as humans aren't able to properly navigate or deal with the internet um, all on our lonesome. So there are there's a legion of these things called Navis, which I believe is short for navigator. And most people in the world have a personal Navi. You take the role of Lan, and his Navi is called Mega Man, with all the Navis, except for the generic ones, having that same sort of uh, name structure. So a word or an idea, and then man. And the Navis aren't avatars. They're like separate, separate people, I guess, living in the internet. It's not really made super clear if they're equal to humans in intelligence, but I, I believe they are. They're, they're basically human personalities that control and function on the waves of the internet. I I don't want to get too deep into the technology because I don't think it matters too much. The main thing is you have an overworld with LAN and you have the internet with Mega Man. Yeah, and the world exploration essentially is a similar style to the Pokemon games. You've got a top-down movement and, you know, you're moving around in the, the real overworld and you'll come across like a USB port or a jack-in port, as it's known in-game. And then you'll interact with it and suddenly you'll be transported. Or rather, Mega Man will be transported from your... Like the equivalent of a, a phone, I guess, the PET, into the internet, which you'll then move around as Mega Man rather than the main character. Yeah, so that's the basic setup of the world. Like I said, I don't think it needs to make much sense. It's just there's a complicated internet you have many people walking around in, and then you've got LAN in the real world. So the plot of Mega Man, the reason I liken it to Harry Potter is that it starts off at least very directionless. LAN is a guy at school inhabiting this world where there's a lot of weird technological stuff you can do that is kind of like magic and that's the only the only real starting point and then events gradually unfold so that's the premise of Mega Man's. but before we get into that james i wanted to ask you 
why you chose Mega Man Battle Network 3. Why number three in the series? Why are we doing this obscure shitty game that no one's heard of? <laughs> I'm pretty sure the Mega Man IP is anything but obscure, Pat, but okay. Okay, so sorry. The Mega Man IP isn't obscure, but I think when you talk, people talk about Mega Man, the thing that comes to mind is the Metroidvania. Yeah, sure. It's not this weird hybrid Pokemon card. I maintain that you just didn't have a childhood, matey. <laughs> I was playing good games. Okay. I was playing PC games. In any case, uh, I chose number three because the general consensus online is that three is the best game. I have played all of them to completion in the past. Oh my God. And I'll throw this out there now. I loved them all to bits when I played them when I was younger. But I did try to play one and two recently again on their Wii U release, um, which came out you know, in the past couple of years, and I don't think that they've held up particularly well, whereas I've the general consensus is that 3 is all the best of the series. I know 4 is pretty much universally hated, and 5 and 6 pick up the slack again, but I think 3 was the correct starting point for us. It's as early in the timeline so as not to be confusing for a new player, but late enough that all the mechanical gameplay improvements really elevate the gameplay a bit past the, you know, dated initial experiences. Uh, yeah, sorry to interrupt. I forgot to talk about how we played the game. So we played on an emulator called Visual Boy Advance, and I just wanted to make a special note that Visual Boy Advance enables frame skip by default, and you can get a much smoother experience if you turn it off. So we didn't do heaps of tweaking, but definitely turn frame skip off because it makes the game look a million times better. And uh, like James mentioned, it, it was also re-released on Wii U. But but apart from that, that's how you can play it. You can emulate it, play it on GBA, or play it on Wii U. And the Wii U experience is pretty good, um, in my opinion, from playing them through myself, yep. So, to begin with, you know, a bit of discussion, let's jump back to the story for a second. So you start the game off playing as Lan Hikari, a fifth grade schoolboy with his personal avatar, Mega Man. Or it's not correct to say avatar, his own, his own Na'vi Mega Man. And you, you know, you're going to school and you're learning about the important techniques of virus busting, which is apparently something that fifth graders learn in this world. Viruses in Mega Man Battle Network aren't your typical programs that run amok inside machinery. They're actually almost rogue AIs that take the form of little enemies within the world. And the previous games established Lan and Mega Man as some of the best virus busters, you know, people who fight and delete viruses, in the entire setting, basically. And the majority of the gameplay involves somebody from an evil organization coming into town, infecting an important piece of machinery with viruses, and then you needing to go and, you know, clear it out and stop the chaos that's being caused. The first scenario of which being your school gets infected with viruses, and as such, you know, chaos ensues, and you need to go and clear out the school of these viruses. And basically, the way the school's internet exists in the world is basically of a video game dungeon, right? You go and you find your USB port that connects you to the school's internet, and you jack in and you send Mega Man in there to bust those viruses. And the general gameplay of the game involves you 
running around these dungeons solving puzzles and fighting viruses, um, which appear as random encounters, kind of like Pokemon style. And the first thing that I really wanted to get into in this game is the actual virus busting gameplay because I think that it's the most unique aspect of the game by far and really it was actually the core reason I chose this game because it's something completely different to anything we've spoken about before in this show. In Mega Man Battle Network, when you encounter an enemy, the screen shifts and you are thrown into what is essentially an arena of two 3x3 grids connected to each other side by side, with your player control character Mega Man on the left grid and the enemies in the encounter on the right grid. And you know, you can only move in your set of squares, so your nine squares and their nine squares are completely separated from each other. Um, in the squares, you can move in real time, up, down, left and right, but not diagonally. And on one of the buttons, you have access to a generic shooting attack, where Mega Man, you know, his arm turns into a cannon and he fires a shot at an enemy. The goal of each pathetically battle... Weak shot, a pathetically weak shot. Um, the goal of each battle is to get each enemy's health down to zero by doing damage to it, essentially. And the gameplay is really you dodging the enemy's attacks while also getting your damage in. So that's like kind of the really basic explanation of the gameplay. But there's another entire element on top of that, which is this game is not only a real-time, you know, action battle system, it's also a collectible card game, essentially. So at the start of the round, after you've loaded in, a screen will appear, and a it'll show you a selection of cards from your deck, and which in this game are flavoured as battle chips, because, you know, everything's electronic in this game. And you will choose a number of these battle chips to use in the next round. So you choose, you know, three chips, press OK, and then the real-time moving around the squares starts. And then at any time during the real-time scenes, you can press A, which will activate the currently selected chip. And that'll launch, you know, an attack that's usually much more powerful than your regular attack you know, in a direction. All the attacks in this game are based on the enemies that you fight. So if you generally, you know, kill an enemy particularly quickly, you can get them as a new move to equip in your deck. So there's this collectible element to the game. As you fight and you run out of chips that you've chosen, there is a bar at the top of the screen that slowly fills up. And once it's completely full, you can press one of the shoulder buttons on the Game Boy to pause the battle and bring up the, you know, the card selection menu again. And the five slots that contains cards to choose from has now been refilled with new cards. So there's this really, like, high variance gameplay that involves the game giving you, like, a set of cards to choose from and you choosing the best ones for your situation. And then there's a lot of cards with different effects that allow you to shape the battlefield, but we'll get into that a bit later. What I first want to ask Patrick is, did you enjoy this really unique kind of gameplay? Uh, I actually did. Um, I thought it was I thought it was really good. There are a couple of nuances to it that threw me off at first. Like it's a it's a grid based game, and that means that enemies do damage not based on whether an attack is hitting you but whether you're occupying the same grid at which the damage is being dealt. And while that often lines up, because this is such a, it's a game that as you get 
further and further into the game, it requires some quite accurate precision. You cannot be getting it close. you got to be, I, I don't know if it's frame perfect, but it often feels like it. So if you're trying to physically dodge the attacks as you see them on the screen, you're going to take a lot of damage. But the real-time action combat makes the game fun in a way that a lot of turn-based RPGs are not. And I can't help but be reminded of Undertale, which, while it's not the same, it's got that real-time action, bullet-held dodging aspect of its gameplay to keep you engaged. And it's got the thing where it throws different enemy combinations and attacks at you to keep it interesting. And Mega Man does a lot of that. And I feel like Mega Man's combat system must have been an inspiration. For uh, I do feel that it, even with the frame skip turned off, it still didn't feel anywhere as near as smooth as it could possibly be. And I think that's because the animations on the tells are a little abrupt. They're not all smoothly animated enemies. And although they do all have tells, it's a lot of blinking around and instant attacks after a short wait. So I think that this gameplay is good, but it certainly take, took me some time to get a hang of the rhythm. Of yeah, the I mean, it's not like... I can't think of another game that's quite like this, right? It's absolutely unique. And the reason it took you two minutes to explain it isn't self-indulgence. I don't know how else you're meant to explain it. This, the, like I said, the closest is Undertale, but it's got nothing to do with Undertale apart from they're both turn-based games with a, you know, a real-time aspect to them. Do you want to move on to specific examples of, um, of, of what, how it operates? Yeah, so let's take a really early on example of a battle, right? So one of the earliest enemies in the game is called a Metor. And it's essentially a little guy wearing like a Japanese style hard hat. And he will generally move up and down the rows of his side of the squares. And then once he's on the same row as you, he will, you know, take out his big stonecutter's pick and slam the ground, sending a shockwave like left across the rows towards your character. Basically, you just need to dodge his shockwaves while trying to hit him in between his downtime. Because, you know, after he's launched the shockwave, he's down for a couple of seconds. And essentially, you know, you'll equip your battleship. Like, a good example is just a sword that swings two squares in front of you. And then, you know, you'll hope to try and line up your hit with him being exhausted. The enemies get a lot more complicated as the game goes on. There'll be characters that lob bombs, that break panels so you can't walk through them, that steal your squares so that you have a restricted movement and they have more. And you need to be choosing cards to maximize your damage and to do your damage safely. Yeah, um, the example I wanted to give is, to me, probably one of the most interesting boss designs in the game, which is King Man. Do you know King yeah, Man? Yeah, the guy that's chess-themed, right? He's chess-themed, and I'm not just picking him out because I love chess. Kingman has uh, sits at the back, and he has two pawns and a knight that are constantly trying to hit you, and I found it very, very tough at first because it's hard to get damage in on Kingman when all the pieces are constantly blocking the way. 
you only have small windows to actually get damage in. But Kingman taught me as it defeated me again and again a really important lesson, which is the one I um I kind of alluded to that damage is based on occupying the grid at the time that an attack goes out. Because I was eventually able to just dance in front of all the pieces by constantly timing my sidestepping quickly. It is possible with good enough timing to avoid all damage in this game. There's nearly no no combat situation. And they do come up, like if uh, terrain on your starts getting destroyed. But if you were timing well enough, you can you can generally anticipate. Um, almost, almost always, your fate is in your hands. If you were good enough, you can dodge the damage. And um, I really like that. And Kingman really demonstrated that to me because you're basically spending your entire time in damaging areas. You're just picking the moments in between their, I guess, the the backhand of their swing that you're taking damage. It's a very skill-intensive and skill-testing real-time action game, which is literally the opposite of what I was expecting coming into a RPG slash card game. So um, I quite liked it, even though it's. I, I still don't think it's as smooth as it possibly could be. And I'm actually wondering if the new, the new version of this, One Step from Eden, I think it's called, I always get the name wrong, will nail that aspect and improve it in a, in a more modern way. Because, yeah, I enjoyed it, but it was a bit clunky and a little, little bit old-fashioned. So it was good enough. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I, quite, I really like the combat in this game. I think that if you're good enough at this game, you can beat every enemy with the basic attack, which is, you know, saying a lot. It does very little damage unless you've pumped points into it. Um, which we'll talk about later. Going back to Kingman for a second. So I really like this boss too, and I got stuck on it for, you know, quite a while. Um, if you visualize the enemy's grid as a numpad on your keyboard, and we label the grid 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9 like a numpad on a computer, Kingman essentially sits on the back column, so 9, 6, and 3, moving up and down. And on the front column the leftmost column closest to your play area are two pawns that take up two of the two of the leftmost squares on the column and if you get you know into a square adjacent to a pawn they will attack you with a sword swing so you're basically relegated to playing in the back two columns of your own squares so that you can't get hit by those two pawns. And in addition, they block attacks and shots, so you have to try and wait for them to move out of the way so you can shoot the boss. But that's not all. In your squares, there is a chess piece themed like a knight jumping around all over the place trying to crush you. So you have to A, be dodging these these knight jumps, and, you know, kind of maneuvering between the pawns to get at the king. And this boss fight, like a lot of the fights in the game, has actually like got a lot of really interesting hidden strategies behind it, I guess. So, in the game there is a battleship, you know, a collectible card, called Airshot, that does, you know, a relatively weak amount of damage, but pushes enemies back as square. And so, one of my initial strategies for this fight was to airshot both of the pawns so that they'd be back squares, and, uh, you know, effectively wouldn't be able to hit me, but... 
As soon as you do that, he kind of realizes what's up. The screen goes dark and this like attack text at the top called uh, Plan B appears. And, you know, a second knight appears and he rearranges the pawns. And, you know, it gets a lot harder <laughs> if you do that. And if you dodge the attacks for too long as well, he does a move called Checkmate, where the king himself tries to jump on top of you, which I don't, uh, I don't think really works in the chess flavor with the king taking what's essentially yes, the opponent's king. I, you can't take a king chess, with a king. That's exactly how it works. <laughs> uh, so I looked, I looked into this fight as well. The idea is that if you play too passively on the back row his pieces start advancing and then he jumps in and crushes you. Yes. Whereas if you play aggressively on the front rows and don't push his pieces back, he doesn't do any of that. So um, I have, I also have a story about Kingman. So um, prior to the Kingman fight, there's a fight where you have to use a preset folder that you find on the island. Yes. And the preset folder that I found had a lot of melee sword attacks in it. The folder being your deck, by the way. Yeah, sorry, your deck. And it has a lot of melee sword attacks. And I didn't realize at the time that uh, for this fight, you could use your own deck again as per normal. Oh, my God. And I'd had the save state after the fight had begun, which is, of course, my fault using an emulator. <laughs> and uh, this fight became basically impossible for me because uh, because I had all of these melee attacks, which did does do actual zero in this fight. They don't actually do anything at all. So I ended up having to reset that entire day. It made me very mad. You know, I actually ended up, when I finally beat King Man, um, I pretty much used maybe like two battle chips and did the whole thing with the Mega Buster. Yikes. Just sitting on the back column charging. Because you can, if you hold the attack button in this game, you charge up a shot, and when you release it, it does about... 10 times the damage of a single shot so i'd charge it up dodge all the attacks and then hit him once i got the chance and it took a while but i found that was the most effective way for me to do it so james we could spend all day talking about all the different enemies and attacks but suffice it to say there are like lots and lots of combinations were there any other bosses or enemies you wanted to touch on um my favorite boss in the game is bubble man Oh, fuck Bubble Man, man. <laughs> I, this, was, this was my first major roadblock. Oh, my God. Yeah, me too. I, uh, um, tell me why you like him, because I do not like him. So it's not necessarily a mechanics reason that I like Bubble Man, but almost a flavor reason. Bubble Man in the story is portrayed as this hugely cowardly character that's terrified of you even though he's the one you know causing all these bad events to happen and his battle perfectly reflects his cowardice he is hiding behind not just one but like two obstacles that make it hard to attack him you know there's a rock on square eight at the top and you know in the middle of his battlefield he has a hole that's constantly spawning bubbles that you can't shoot through in his final stage yeah he yeah and not only that but if you ever stand on the same row as bubble man he moves because he's terrified of getting hit and then when you get him onto low health he gets a shield that blocks an instance of damage so you have to like shoot it to pop the bubble and then you know throw something at him and this took me quite a while to get through and I ultimately cheesed this fight completely. Um, if you're aware, there is a battleship called, I think it's called Rock or Brick or something, that makes a big stone cube on the battlefield that blocks attacks. 
And so I got the cube and I spawned it on the enemy's, you know, four position, the one to the left of the hole that spawns bubbles. And that effectively stopped the hole spawning bubbles. And one of the reasons the bubble man is so difficult is that inside the bubbles are often missiles that when you pop them are launched towards you. So by putting a cube in front of that and blocking the bubbles, it made the fight like a hundred times easier. Yeah, he's just got all these shields. That's the gist of it. He's got all these shields to protect him from damage. Not only that, but at that stage of the game, I had unlocked a customization option for my character where my charge shots hit something, but also hit the square behind what you shot. So I was shooting the rock when Bubble Man was hiding behind it so he'd get hit anyway. Ah, nice. Yeah, nice. so yeah, I found that really fun. So my experience was the style I unlocked was the fire style and I didn't realize you could turn it off. So I was taking right. double damage from everything. Until oh my I God. It out. <laughs> <laughs> so screw Bubble Man and his infinite shields and his bloody attacks that would kill me nearly instantly. Oh, I beat Perfect. him. I beat him though. We got there. So I actually want to come back to the gameplay a bit later once we have some more context yeah, yeah. in the game. Yeah, that makes sense. So aside from these poke, like these random encounters, um, the dun- going back up to the battle dungeons, um, you're essentially running around the internet trying to solve puzzles in order to, you know, open the way to the next area and eventually the boss. And then at a level above that, the main character Lan is running around in the overworld, also helping to solve puzzles to progress the story. So how did you feel about the basic dungeon exploration so james i hate this game you hate this game there are parts of this game which are incredible yeah but the core experience of this game is awful really It's, it's absolutely awful i have written out a list of complaints okay you ready yeah okay so to begin with so specifically i think that saying that the gameplay is just the dungeons is inaccurate. Yes. Because I found a big chunk of the gameplay was talking to people, interacting with the right objects, going to the right places, catching trains, and wandering around places you'd already explored, hoping to stumble into the right enemy or object that you needed. And you would be moving between the overworld and the underworld as you were doing this. Yes. And I think that aside from the specific dungeon areas, that that constituted the majority of my time playing this game. You would literally get into spots where you would get to an area and you would have to talk to 14 people or examine 14 objects in order to progress. 14's a bit of an exaggeration. What about the zoo, man? What about the zoo? I got stuck on the zoo for ages because I forgot to examine one fucking cage (laughs) to progress the gameplay. Yeah, okay. And navigating between the overworld and the underworld, I keep calling it the underworld, it's the internet. Navigating between those two things is not easy. It's not like there are ports all over the place. If If you're in the zoo area, there aren't, seven places in the zoo area which let you access the zoo part of the internet 
Oh no, you have to often leave the zoo area, go to another area, catch the train in the virtual area to return to the zoo version of the internet in order to get where you need to go to get a particular item. And then you need to do it all in reverse. Oh, and it takes, you know, 10 minutes wandering around this underworld area, getting into randomly encountered battles the entire time. This sucked. I hated it. It was very tedious and it was monotonous as well. So what do you think of that, James? You, you think this is a good gameplay experience? Because I found it boring. I thought it was getting in the way of the game. I didn't hate it as much as you did. My biggest criticism about this game does kind of align with what you're saying, and it's that much of the overworld activities that you're performing are essentially just fetch quests, right? Like, you'll go to somebody and say, hey, what's up? And they'll be like, yeah, can you go get this thing off person B? who's all the way in this other spot, and then you'll run there, and he'll be like, actually, you need to go to this person as well. And then you spend, you know, quite a lot of time running back and forth, not doing a whole lot, right? And that's definitely, you know, probably the worst part of the game for me. However, to me, the thing that I really like about this game is that all the areas, although you do go through them quite a lot, are constantly updating with new things as the story progresses. And, you know, I really didn't mind going back to old areas to find, because there was new stuff to find, right? As I've said in previous episodes, exploration is one of my favorite things in video games, and I think that this game offers that in spades. If you just go from point A to point B doing the quests like that, I can absolutely see that it would be an awful gameplay experience. But generally, my play pattern was get the quest, spend a bit, you know, running around the area fighting things and, you know, searching every nook and cranny for battle chips and money and that kind of thing. And then, you know, once I got to the area, just naturally, you know, handing it in and then continuing on my merry way. This game's exploration is terrible. Uh, number one, the internet is bland. It is oh so bland. It's it's a series of maze-like corridors. That's it. Occasionally, it'll open up in a grid, like a, a square, but it's generally just a connection of corridors. There are very few identifying landmarks. There are one or two, but on the whole, it's got like a wallpaper background as you move along these mazeways. So geographically, there's very little that's memorable or interesting about the areas you're exploring. This is not a very creative depiction of the internet, and it's not a very memorable one either. You know, I actually really like the shitty backgrounds in all the areas. They, um, <laughs> they remind me of those shitty 90s internet websites with those awful animated wallpapers, and I think that, that that's what it was going for, and you know, I just actually found it hilarious, if a bit dodgy. They remind me of the Microsoft PowerPoint uh, presentations I used to give as a kid where I used to get an image and then stretch it out to, to make the frame. But, uh, but it's just one generic background for the entire level. So there's nothing really distinguishable or interesting about it. Exploration to me requires you going to interesting areas and more, most importantly, new areas and finding new things. And... It, I don't know. Yes, there are new items interspersed. There will be NPCs in random new locations, that's true. But you're treading the same ground and exploring and retreading your the same path 
over and over again. It would be less of an issue if it was easier to navigate. There are these shortcuts that open up in specific locations, but it's very poorly implemented. Really? And like I said, why can you not jack into this internet subnetwork from basically anywhere? You can, though. Not only does it make... Well, you you can in some in some places, but they're not always connected to the wider web. Yeah, sure, but the jack-in points are pretty close to each other. There's, you know, at least one in each area. Yeah, I, still, it's I I don't know. I part of the problem is that because you're constantly being thrown into RNG battles, it's faster to navigate in the overworld in a lot of instances. Yes than it is to constantly be interrupted with battles every few steps. So what I would like is way more points to jack in or alternatively a hub world, like a, a centralized location that has warp points to everywhere once you have explored them to, to stop me from retreading the same ground over and over again. The other thing that would have helped me a lot as the person who's never played this game before is some kind of map system. Because, like I said, without any landmarks, I was lost all the time. I was, particularly when you get to the bits with the, um, the one-way corridors where one wrong step can put you back to where you started. No map system, no warp points, no, no multiple jack-in points. Exploring this place was a nightmare to me. I didn't enjoy it at all. Really? Okay. I actually really liked having to map out all the new areas of the internet um, and, you know, find the quickest way between them and that kind of thing. And I actually, you're going to completely disagree with me, but there's a bit in this game where, you know, we've spoken about how the flavor of this game is going into the internet. Well, this game even has a representation of the deep web, you know, that dark, nasty place yes. that only criminals reside. And the deep web is, an like, if you thought the other areas were confusing and maze-like, the deep web... The Undernet takes it to an entirely another level. It is so confusing to navigate this area, and I actually had a blast figuring out the whole place because there's all sorts of things hidden in there to find. I will emphasize that the first time I got to any new area, it was fine. It's fine for it to be maze-like and confusing, although I think the lack of landmarks is still seriously a strike against it. It's when the fifth time I've returned to that area that I get sick of it. Games like Hollow Knight that have these big expansive worlds, they gradually give you more more ways to to I guess skip exploring areas you've already explored. Mega Man doesn't do that. You just got to keep retreading the same ground. The world feels very small as a consequence. I will say that the overworld while it is small, it is aesthetically a lot better than the the underworld I, I don't have that same it's filled with landmarks and everything my, my criticism is mainly of those underworld bits but uh having to go back and forth between the over and underworld as i tried to progress through the game yeah i hated it it was it was, i felt like the game was deliberately wasting my time you know, I actually have here on my notes that I thought the overworld was a bit bland and I liked the theming of the internet. Oh, how can you say that? There's, <laughs> it's it's just, it's literally a bunch of corridors. Yeah, it is. But like, all the paths uh, are different colors and there's different patterns everywhere. And, the you know, oh all the God. theming's right. And I don't know, I found it more interesting, especially the undernet. I love the undernet. 
I think the theming in that area. Yeah, because it's it's a spooky purple color, therefore it's evil, right? Yeah, and there's all these spikes mm. everywhere, and the background is like television noise, and the you know the music track, and the, I don't know. I I really like the internet. I think it evokes this feeling of the shitty '90s interpretation of the internet. Listen, let me let me give you an example: the Bubble Man questline. So, in order to take on Bubble Man, you first encounter him, and then you follow him. And then you're told, oh, in order to get further with Bubble Man, you need to go and get this item. So you leave the underworld, you go to the science lab to get an item. But that person doesn't have it, so you speak to another person and you get it. But it won't fit in your Navi, so you go see person B. Person B can't help you, person C can't help you, but person D can. So then you can finally follow Bubble Man, but then you get stopped again. And you need to go to three more places following them all over the place, having to find them in every area. And I'm like, just let me fight the boss. Just let me let me do this. Why are you sending me on these elaborate fetch quests in order to progress? It's it's so frustrating. Like, I, I want to play the game and I feel like it's getting in my way. And I, I know that it is the game. It's just uh, very, very frustrating and annoying. I will agree with you that that part of the game was particularly bad. And I actually think... So there are several kind of scenarios or dungeons throughout this game. The way the story's set up kind of in a high level, it's basically a Saturday morning episodic cartoon, right? Like things happen and then, you know, it'll wind down and then something big will happen the next day. And I think that the first two or three scenarios were pretty, pretty bland, honestly. But after that, I think it ramps up quite a bit. I found that... The story setup is essentially, you know, you're just being a school kid, right? And nothing interesting's happening. And then all of a sudden they announce this big tournament. And to be able to enter the tournament, you have to compete in these qualifiers, which, you know, you do and you beat them. And then about halfway through the game, you partake in this, you know, televised tournament. And at that point in the game, I think that the dungeon design and like what you're doing picks up significantly. I think that that tournament and all the different things, because um, it's basically a reality TV show where you're taken to this island and you have to do all these battles under strange conditions. I think that, where it's not making you run around all over the place, was, you know, where the game kind of massively improved for me. Uh, I agree. Um, for all of my whinging and criticism, it mainly relates to the navigation and the constantly having to go back and forth. Whereas I felt the dungeons, particularly in the latter half of the game, as you say, it felt like a more logical uh, progression. Like, you know, you, you're not having to pop in and out and run to all the different parts of town in order to accomplish what you're doing. You're progressing through a dungeon. So I felt like it was a more natural progression with an escalation of challenge rather than all these all these constant breaks. So yes, the the dungeons, while they were very simplistic and easy, I struggled to even call them puzzles a lot of the time. Yes. Uh, there's one or two that are a bit tricky, but really it's just just doing the obvious thing. But they I, I did enjoy those. They they were they were fine. I still think that it looked terrible and I still got lost because you know, how, how are you meant to distinguish one random passageway from another? But uh, but I didn't feel like the game was wasting my time. Yeah, I think that... I'll, I mean, I'll agree, the fetch quests are the worst part of the game by far. But this game has a lot of different elements that together, I think, make it worth playing, essentially. 
I, I would agree with you if if that wasn't such a large part of the game. Because to me, those fetch quests dominated my playing time. There is literally a part of the game where you are forced to do four side quests. Yes. Like that's that's literally part of the game. It says stop what you're doing, do these four fucking side quests. Sorry, pardon my language, but I was like, are you serious? I have to. I, uh, I Shit like that, it, it just turns me off games like this because it, it feels like it's just trying to pad out its content. So I was going to bring up this specific scenario um, as well because I think it's fucking hilarious. Basically, the premise of this is... So in the in the Battle Network series, you have a rival named Chord who you're constantly butting heads with, essentially. You know, he's like the Gary Oak of Pokemon. He's a bit of a stuck-up asshole, even though, you know... Overall, he's a pretty good guy, and he's very good at net battling, just like you. And so this side character, actually the person who owns Kingman that we discussed before, comes up to you and he's like, Hey dude, I know the secret to why this guy's so strong, but before I tell you, you've got to do these four shitty, shitty fetch quests for me. And I was like, oh my god. And then you spend like you spend quite a while doing these shitty side quests because you want to know what makes this guy so strong, what his secret is, because the characters really, really hyped up that this super secret thing is going to, you know, help you to improve too. So you do these shitty fetch quests and then you finally hand them all in after, you know, ages of just running back and forth inanely. And he's like, all right, thanks, dude. So guess what I found out? I found out that Chord trains for nine hours a day, doing 100 push-ups, 100 sit-ups, <laughs> and going for a 10k run. Yeah, the secret uh, to his powers. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I found it. You know, it was like it was like a slap in the face, but it was also kind of funny. There, there were multiple times playing this game that I did laugh out loud. I, I got, I got to say, for all of my criticism of it, I don't. I don't hate it. sense of humor. One of my favorite recurring motives is you ask someone something and they offer to give you help before explaining the reason they were able to do it is because they're mega millionaires and yes. then they laugh at how poor you are. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's quite funny. Yeah, I did want to bring up the humor too because there's actually quite a few instances that stood out in my mind as being hilarious. There is um, There was this section in the final level which essentially takes place in Dr. Wily's castle. And this castle is more of a, like, electronic fortress with all sorts of robots and, you know, technological advances thrown around it. You know, this thing is super high-tech. This is a high-tech castle. And partway through trying to break into the castle, you walk past a rolling boulder, like, Indiana Jones style boulder trap that chases you down this like this hill and I just thought that was so funny like why not just install like some machine guns in the wall right yeah the game the game's aware that it's all a bit stupid and nonsensical so it's willing to to play with it and I can I can respect that it's not trying to take itself too seriously yeah just perfect home security right there. We don't need this age of technological marvels. You know, a big rock will do the trick. It will. It's a. It's an age-old, uh, age-old method of stopping people right from uh, World One of Mario sixty-four.
So I guess with that, let's jump into the story a little bit. Um, as I mentioned before, this game's story is essentially a Saturday morning cartoon, right? There's not a lot of, you know, deep and meaningful character development here. And there's just lots of kids running around solving problems and fighting bad guys. But there are a few sections in the game which, you know, try to lift themselves up above that childish mold somewhat. Um, in particular, the areas with the hospital and the scenario that involves setting everything on fire. I wanted to ask you how you felt about those two. Uh, I'm not very high on the story. No? It, it's, it's, hard, it's hard to criticise stories like this because they're so obviously written for children. Yes. But so it's certainly better than, you know, Ape Escape or F-Zero GX, but only by a bit. These, the, uh, I ignored the story. It was rubbish. There's nothing, nothing of value here, and that's fine. And it, that's that's okay. Like it's not for me. I, uh, I'm not playing this game for the story, and neither should you. Why, why, why don't you tell me what you thought was of value, and I'll tell you how I feel about them. So the story's never amazing, but there are a couple of points in the story that I quite enjoyed. Namely, a whole scenario involving what is essentially a child who has been in hospital his entire life. Uh, and you kind of like working to overcome this for him by being, you know, a good role model. Um, I thought that was, you know, nice and uplifting. It wasn't like amazing, but I liked really? it. Really? It was terrible. It was terrible. He's like, he's like, I've never had any friends. And then Lan says, what are you talking about? You've got one friend right here. Yeah, like, how good is it? <laughs> how is that good? How can Come you on, hate man. that? You're Come on. How cold Come on. do you okay. have to be? Okay. okay, what about this? What about this? The villain, he's, he's currently undergoing surgery to save his life, and the villain is trying to kill him by turning off the power. She's like, yeah, it's okay if that little boy who's never walked and doesn't have any friends until recently dies because he can't get the surgery he needs. And Lamb positions himself as the person who's trying to save his new friend. That is not good writing. What do How you is mean? that good writing? That's terrible. It's so <laughs> hokey and cliche. Yeah, and, it is. Yeah. If it's you, a Saturday morning cartoon, Pat. It's supposed to be like that. Hey, you said these bits elevated them above Saturday morning cartoons. Yeah, to me, well, this is this is right on the level. And listen, it's fine. I, I, this story is clearly aimed at ten-year-olds like yourself, and you can get value out of it, and that's okay. All I'm saying is that it's terrible, and you should feel bad for enjoying it. My um, my favorite part of the story is the bit where the really obvious villain. Um, pretending to be a good guy is asking you to install these like fire themed programs and all these devices like it's like please install really hot.exe inside this vending machine <laughs> and your character's like sure i'll do that and you know eventually that you know full spoilers here um <laughs> eventually that results in you setting your father's lab on fire and almost killing your own father uh, right after you've been declared the hero of the town. And, you know, the character gets a little depressed after that because, you know, he's done this really, really rubbish thing. Actually, I wanted to bring this up with you. The whole time I was, you know, moping about setting the lab on fire, the thing that I kept thinking in my head was that bit in The Simpsons where Ralph Wiggum has the leprechaun on his shoulder and he's like, he tells me to burn things. Len <laughs> <laughs> had a moment of weakness. Oh, yeah. I will say, you know what my favourite part of that whole hospital storyline was? What? 
So at one point you're on the beach with with this kid. I can't, I can't remember his name, but he starts having a heart attack, and then the battle music kicks in, and I burst out laughing <laughs> because you need to you need to go tell a doctor he's having a heart attack, and then boom, battle music. It's like get hype. I'm like, is this really that appropriate? My friend's dying of a heart attack. You're trying to get me hyped up for a fight. Uh, that was good. But like I said, when the story worked for me, it's when it was these funny world building things. Um, I also enjoyed when you would go into like a vending machine and there would be these two Navis, like a Navi training another Navi on the uh, on how their program should work. And like one Navi getting upset at another Navi because they kept getting open and closed confused. Yeah. Things like that. That that was fine and funny and enjoyable. But when it comes to the main story beats, it sucks. It's just it's just terrible. It's I want nothing to do with it. Okay. I'm glad you enjoyed it. But but yeah, I have nothing good to say about it. I think the story starts off quite slow um and you know ends up in a pretty strong place by the end from the from the perspective of you know this Saturday morning cartoon for kids like from that angle, I think it's pretty good. The main guy wants to destroy the world, James. That is his plan. Yeah. He literally... Uh, I know, uh, right? And I'm not saying that somebody our age playing it for the first time is going to get a whole lot of value. In fact, I'm saying the opposite. But, you know, if younger kids want to play this for the first time, you know, I think it's fine. Yes, if you're six years old, you'll probably enjoy this. If you don't have a heart of stone, I think there is some fun to be had. (laughs) The existence of things like the Marvel movies has elevated our expectations of a storyline for children far, far, far beyond anything in Mega Man. This is trash. And that's fine, but it's trash. I know I know you might feel differently, but it's it's trash. The best thing about the story, and I wanna know if you agree with this with me, is the way it's presented makes sense if you fully give yourself into it, but if you examine it at all, it just completely falls apart in, like, the most hilarious ways. Like, nothing that's actually happening makes sense at all, and it's so funny when you just sit there and you think about it for a second. And I, like, I almost think that it's on purpose to the point where I got a lot of enjoyment out of it, right? Well, like I said, I think that I don't have a. I think that the game doesn't take itself seriously in a lot of spots, and I think that that's where the game is best. Yes, but um, I think part of the problem is the main villain's motivations and everything is played too straight, and the the seriousness, you know, the faux seriousness of a lot of what's going on is played too straight. If the entire thing was set up as a as a satire, then I would buy it. But I, I think that it's just poorly executed in a lot of ways. But yeah, anyway, I've, I've bitched enough and complained enough. I've, I've made my point. I don't, I don't want to keep going on.
One thing that's really important to the gameplay that we haven't quite touched on yet is the deck building aspect and the character customization of this game. Because that actually, you know, is a big part of the experience, is collecting all these battle chips and then, you know, making a cool deck with them. So some of the context that I kind of want to give you guys about the deck building before we begin is that when you're selecting cards to use for a round in battle, you can't just choose whatever card you want, right? So there are two major rules that govern what cards you can choose for a round. The first is you can select cards that are the same card. So if you have four small swords, you can choose them all to be used in the next round, right? But oftentimes you want to have a better variety, not just, you know, these four swords. So each battleship actually has a has an alphabet code assigned to it. For example, you will have the battleship Sword A and Sword B. And so, you know, your selection may be between Sword A, Sword B, and Bomb A. And you can also choose cards together that have the same letter code. So you could choose Sword A and Bomb A, but then that disables choosing Sword B, right? Because it doesn't have the letter A. So when you're building your deck, one of the things that you want to be very mindful of is keeping the amount of codes down so that you can select lots of chips uh, at once. There's also a wildcard code that can be selected with any other card as well, um, which are particularly powerful, but in general those tend to have weaker effects overall to balance it out a bit. Um, so Patrick, how did you feel about the deck building? So overall, the deck building is far and away the best part of this game. It is even better than the uh, than the basic gameplay, although it obviously feeds into that gameplay a lot. Um, the variety of attacks and strategies that you can employ in building your deck is unreal. And I changed my deck configuration in significant ways, I would say at least 10 times throughout the game, in addition to lots of small tweaking and trying out different attacks. There's no penalty for changing cards out. Uh, once you finish the battle, you can change them up however you choose. It's phenomenal. There, there are so many different interesting cards that do these diverse things. Some of them combo extremely well together to the point where certain cards by themselves are in a lot of ways useless. Some of them are utility-based. Some of them are basically raw damage. So a lot of them affect terrain. It's it's superb. And although you do get functional upgrades as you go along, it's never an absurd overpowering of the previous version. Your As your cards get more powerful, they also get more diverse and the strategies you can employ get more diverse as well. So just overall, excellent. A plus, bravo. Yeah, so there's a couple more little bits that I want to add um, for the context behind the deck building. When you make your deck, you have a certain amount of, they call it memory, right? And each chip has its own memory value, and you can assign one chip in your deck to be the first card you draw every single battle. Um, and throughout the adventure, you go around, you upgrade your memory, so you can have your default chip be stronger and stronger as you go through. And this is really good because it enables a lot of strategies that revolve around you having a specific card all the time. For example, 
one of the things you can do in this game is you can set all the grid to be of a certain element. Like you can make the floor grass, for example, and then all your fire attacks do double damage because, you know, it burns and consumes the grass for bonus damage. So for that strategy to work, you always have to have the chip that sets the stage to grass in your opening hand. And there's like a whole bunch of these really synergistic strategies that wouldn't work without this little conceit. Um, and I really like its inclusion here. And then the second thing I want to add is that in the game, there are these hidden combinations of chips, right? For example, there is a chip that it just summons a cannon to do, you know, a shot of damage in a straight line. If you select cannon A, cannon B, and cannon C together in the pick screen, when you go into battle, you know, a little animation will play and these cannons will combine into one card. And in the case of the cannons, you get to shoot the cannon as much as you want for like six seconds doing like an absurd amount of damage. So one of the ways you can set your deck up is to have lots of these possible combinations as well a bunch of like cheap uh, star cards that let you, you know, quickly go through your deck to assemble these combinations to do shitloads of damage. So did you actually figure that out? I know in 3 I don't think they actually tell you about program advance. Nope. Uh, so for all of my gushing about all the different strategies, I really didn't get too in-depth into the more complicated ones. I was very much experimenting with individual cards, and I think I tried every single card I got access to to see what its effect was. Yep. And I swapped out cards for particular enemies or bosses that I was struggling with, but I never really assembled a combo deck like you do in you know, Magic the Gathering or Hearthstone. It was a lot more roughshod than that. And I, I don't think that's a bad thing. The first time you play through these games, I don't think it's reasonable that you should be expected to do that but it does mean that i can see the potential for as you play even further past the uh past the end of the game there's lots of cool things you can do probably has cool implications for multiplayer as well but uh it, in terms of the single player experience i mean it was it was fan i, like, I really enjoyed the deck building i love i love the diversity that that's a big thing the the fact that so many different attacks function in different ways felt like I had a lot of options to tackle different different challenging situations in different ways. Yeah, absolutely. So you're saying you didn't end up having like a really uh, kind of like needle hone strategy at any point in the game? Yeah, I, I think that my generic strategy was based around, you know, ranged attacks plus heals. But that that didn't cut it in a lot of spots. And the other thing I wanted to add is that I really liked the progression system of finding a powerful card, like just finding one copy of a powerful card, because it often gave you these absurd spikes in power that made you feel really good. It reminded me of finding a really powerful like weapon in a game like Diablo, yes. like that's kind of above your level range and you get to just kill enemies freely for a while. So when you find, like I found this, uh, it was called the H-bomb or something, like quite early on. And every time I drew it, I just wiped the field and it felt great until, you know, the enemies got to a level where it was a more reasonable weapon. Do you mean the time bomb? Uh, no, it was it was a thrown bomb that exploded on impact or it just uh, it just landed on the field and you could blow it up if you missed. Okay, sure. 
Yeah, so I completely agree with you. It's really interesting to me that this game is an RPG, but it doesn't really rely on levels or stats or, you know, these kind of like abstract numbers that a lot of RPG systems do for their leveling. This game has your HP that you upgrade occasionally by finding HP up items hidden in the world. But other than that, you're just improving your character by finding stronger and stronger cards. And compared to a lot of other role-playing games, I really like this sense of progression. Like, finding a new powerful card does feel amazing. And I found myself, you know, pausing the story all the time to go and try and find, you know, really cool cards to make my deck better with. Yeah, fi- finding new cards is meaningful not because it was a stat increase, but because it gave you access to a different strategy as well. So I I, I know I'm harping on about it, but I, I really appreciate the diversity of ways that you could solve problems in this game. There was no point at which I felt truly hopeless and helpless except Bubble Man, where I was forced to get good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think compared to a lot of other card games... These cards have mechanical things that they do in-game, like you throw a bomb or, you know, you change the terrain. They don't just do a bit of damage like in, you know, Hearthstone or Magic the Gathering. They, you know, physically impact this real-time game that you're playing, and I think that's, like, uh, amazing. I will say the UI for creating decks and changing cards out is complete trash. Yeah. Uh, It's not not unusable, you know, you, you put up with it, but... You can only change one card at a time. You can't view your entire deck at once. I understand this was made for the GBA, but in terms of the experience I had just just playing it, it, it was it was frustrating. Luckily, I generally was only changing a few cards in and out at once, but uh, yeah, it's pretty bad. It's it's sucky. If you're used to playing Hearthstone or Magic, you're gonna be you're gonna be very annoyed at this UI. Yeah, it's it's pretty fiddly. I'll definitely admit that. Um, and a quick aside. I've played all these games to completion, some of them multiple times. Um, I've played this series a lot, but I hadn't played it, you know, past the age of 14. You know, I'm like 26 now. So me and Patrick actually met playing card games, right, in the real world. Um, Lots of Magic the Gathering. Um, And so I was really interested to see if I could break this game's deck building system, coming back to it after like 10 years. And oh boy, I found out after a bit of research that the deck I had been trying to make is like one of the best ones in the game, just like generally. So what I was doing was for my default chip, I had a ice stage asterisk. So, you know, basically playing like the whole map is ice all the time. Uh, You know, and ice means that anything standing on it slips around. So enemies have a hard time shooting you. And B, if you hit them with an electric attack, they take double damage. Early on in the game, you know, the first boss is called Flashman, and when you defeat this boss hidden around in the world, you get his battle chip, and Flashman's battle chip is just every enemy on the screen takes a lot of electric damage, and so I got as many Flashman chips as I could, and then the start of every battle turned everything to ice and then just nuked the screen, you know. And not only does it do a shitload of damage because of the double damage, but it stuns them as well. Uh, So once that got up and running, I was absolutely plowing through this game. Uh, It was very funny. It wasn't as smooth for me. I got got caught a lot. Uh, A lot of fights were struggles for me. I found the game pretty difficult, to be honest. Yeah, it um, was. 
there were points where I did uh, look up strategy strategy guides for help, but it's a bit thin on the ground because the game was released in 2002. There's a lot of stuff about the top tier folders, less so about I am struggling in this situation with this set of mediocre chips. So I was forced to just get good in a lot of spots and kind of muddle through, but I kind of liked that. And uh, like I said, I, I think the game gave me enough to to muddle through with I, I didn't feel like i was banging my head up against the wall except when i got stuck at that stupid Kingman spot <laughs> but uh, apart from that yeah I, I felt like with the right set of cards and good enough dodging i could take on anything the game threw at me how did you feel about the final boss because for me that was definitely the hardest part of the game yeah it took me to me two to three hours like yeah, two to he's... three actual hours yeah yeah, like the final boss of this game is no joke. Like he hits hard, very, very hard. But um, and I had like I had to change out um, my chips yeah. a few times. But um, eventually I got good enough at dodging and not wasting damage when he's not vulnerable to take him down. Yeah, because there's like it's not an unfair fight. It's just actually hard, which you know I really liked as the final conclusion to the game was this really difficult battle that you just need to get good at. The other thing is you you can deck in this game. Like your cards don't get <laughs> yes. shuffled back like Slay the Spire. You just run out of cards. So I had times where I just ran out of cards against that boss. And I was like, well, I guess I'll die now. So uh, quick spoilers for anybody listening. Spoiler warning, that is. There's actually this chip that you can buy that's like hidden in the middle of fucking nowhere. It's And you can only have one of these in your deck because there's normal. Ch- this game has normal cards, which you can have up to four of. Uh, mega cards which you can have one of and then giga cards which there's only like five of in this game but have extremely powerful effects and the the best giga chip in the game is called folder back and it just Ah. puts all the cards back into your deck including Ah. itself so you never run out of cards if you have it in your deck yeah so uh, i didn't quite get that you have to do a lot of grinding to get it but uh you know there's a lot of fun stuff you can do if you go out of your way but yeah, the deck building system's great. I think it's the most robust part of the game. Highly recommend. They did a great job. Yeah, it's excellent. And then just one more note on the customization. Um, in this game, when you play a certain way, after 100 battles, your character changes forms into a form that kind of reflects your play style. For example, I used a lot of chips that summoned an ally to fight with me. So I got a form that allowed me to uh, summon more of them, essentially. And there's stuff for, you know, using lots of melee attacks or using lots of heals and that kind of thing. I was just curious, which one did you get? I got uh, I got the shield one because I was using the heals. I used the heals a lot to recover my health when it was getting low in the encounters. So I would get myself to... A situation where I couldn't take damage from the enemy. Like I just dodge back and forth, cycle through my folders till I hit my heels, use them. So yeah, I got the defensive style. Yeah, sure. And um, so when you have these, if you want to get a different one, you basically have to abandon the current one and you can't select it again once you get a new one. Um, and that's kind of annoying in some ways, but in other ways, I think it adds to like the replayability of the game almost. No, it's but- trash. No, it's trash, yeah. I can say that. Yeah, I, I mean, I like I like the fact that you can swap between decks with no penalty. You can swap out other aspects of your character with no penalty. Not being able to swap styles is just an oversight, in my opinion. Yeah, sure. 
Um, and then finally, there is one more component to character customization called the Navi Customizer, which is essentially a big grid of squares which you fit Tetris-style blocks into to try and give your character new abilities. And there's a whole bunch of rules for fitting these slots in there. And if you do it poorly, your character will become riddled with bugs and various, you know, random effects will start to plague you through battle. Like, you'll start losing HP over time or, like, your character will, you know, skip chips or miss their attacks. Just weird shit starts happening. I thought my game was bugged, which it was. Which it <laughs> I was. Thought, I thought something was wrong because the my my gun stopped working. I'm like, like, it shot only one every three bullets. And then I was like locked into up, like my it was like I was holding down the up arrow key. <laughs> so uh, yeah, that was that was quite funny how it happened. So it's it's because you put your Tetris blocks in wrong. Yeah, and I mean I actually liked that. I was like, yep, well I didn't follow the rules and the game is bugged, and they said it would be bugged, so. It's not just that it doesn't allow you to put them in that way, it just gives you negative consequences, which I think, from a gameplay perspective, is a lot more fun and silly that way. I liked it a lot. I wish you'd been able to rotate the Tetris blocks. That was frustrating. You can. Oh, you can? You know, okay, yeah, you can, but you have to unlock the ability per colour. Ah, right. Yeah, and you find the ability to rotate blocks throughout the world. And you okay. also find the ability to shrink the blocks, um, but those are harder to find. Okay. Uh, I, had to, I had to Google those. The only, I like the customization. The only thing I didn't like about it is that there is a particular block that you need to traverse parts of the world, and I found myself constantly having to take it out and put it back in the customizer, and that was a pain in the ass. But apart from that, I quite liked it. Is all right. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's another it's another thing, and I thought it was well implemented. Yeah, and basically, because there's all this customization, the game gives you lots of opportunities to explore the world and find more chips, more HP ups, more memory ups, more program customizations, money, everything. Uh, and I really like games with lots of collectibles. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of my time in this game was running around getting more things because, you know, I just like doing that, right? Well, you obviously enjoyed that aspect a lot more than I did. Yeah, sure. I think that, I mean, I think it's a separate thing to the world being interesting to explore. Like, if the world had been interesting to explore and had all that stuff hidden around it, you probably, like, the same as it is now, you probably would have liked that a lot more, right? Well, everything's just lying out in the open, um... You know, and it, like I said, I, I don't like revisiting the same areas endlessly in the hope that something cool has spawned there. Okay, I can see that. One thing I bet you do like, though, is the fact that oftentimes getting chips from enemies is tied to how well your performance in that battle was. I thought that was really good. Yeah, kind of. It, I, I kind of almost wish it was a random chance because you you eventually get strong enough that you can just kill the lower tier monsters immediately and that's the best way to get it i don't know it i don't hate the process of you know the faster you kill the enemies the more you get the chips or if you double kill them or triple kill them yeah it does encourage a particularly i guess a particular aggressive play style which which i didn't really adopt immediately because i wanted to learn the enemy's attacks and dodge the enemy's attacks and play carefully at first it, it's fine. Um, I see the appeal, but it did mean as a newcomer, I was getting less less chips than a random random situation would have given given me. 
it certainly it certainly rewards good players, but it because it's rewarding you in terms of diversity. I, I just I just wish I'd had easy access to more chips. Yeah, that's fair enough. Um, I guess the final thing I want to discuss about the collecting and the kind of the decks before we wrap up and start talking about the visuals and the sound uh, is the game's economy because this game has lots of shops everywhere and lots of things to spend money on. But it's particularly stingy with the cash flow I found. And I actually really like this because it means that the purchases you do make, you have to consider carefully because, you know, you only have so much money to spend. And I much prefer that to, you know, being swamped with cash and just being able to buy out every shop that you find. The problem for me, once again, as a new player, is that it was impossible for me to evaluate how strong a chip was without trying it first. And so it was always safer for me to put all of my money into the HP up options rather than speculatively putting it into a chip that that may be bad or would be outdated in a couple of hours. So, uh, yeah, I, I can't say, once again, as a newcomer, I, I don't see the incentive to spend a lot of money on potentially something powerful when I can go the safe way and just keep getting more and more HP. So if I'd had more money, I would have been able to be getting all these different chips, trying out new strategies. I would have preferred that. Okay, fair enough. Well, with that said, I guess we can both at least agree that both the combat and the deck building of this game pretty pretty unique and excellent in my opinion. I think the deck building is excellent. The combat I'm not 100% sold on. I feel like there is enjoyment to be got out of it, but it's not a smooth, perfect product. It still feels a bit clunky to me, but it's certainly the most unique part of it and it's interesting and worth your time for that reason, even if it's not perfectly implemented. Before we finish, I do want to talk about the aesthetics of this game. And yeah, we still have to get to sound even, fuck. This is a long episode because of how unique this game is. Um, But I think taking the time to explain definitely is the right thing to do. So as for aesthetics, I think that in battle, this game looks a lot better than it does in the overworld. In fact, I would say that in battle, this game looks incredible still to this day. I think the art style of this game absolutely holds up and I think is pretty much timeless. I think you could play this game anytime and it would still look good. That said, one of the interesting things about it is that because it was originally made for the Game Boy Advance, it's difficult to play this game at, you know, larger screen sizes. On an emulator, you can stretch it out, but it does start to look a bit worse for wear the bigger you make the window. So I generally played with, you know, about half my monitor size. I think that the enemy designs in particular are absolutely a joy to look at. They all look completely unique from one another. The designs are really charming and they're very expressive. Um, And I wanted to know if you shared that sentiment. So this may shock you, James, 
but I agree. Really? I, I think that, yeah, I think that um, this is the one success of the aesthetics. Not the one success, that's being too harsh. This is the most successful part of the aesthetics. The enemy designs are wonderful. My favorite enemy in the entire game is a boss called Bowl Man. Yeah. And his, his whole theme is he shoots bowling pins at you and bowling balls to destroy the bowling pins. But uh, every every enemy in the game has uh, is invested with personality. And that, that's what you need from your enemies. You need them to feel alive and that they have character. And even though... I think that the narrative behind all these things is rubbish. The characters themselves could fit in any any uh, any issue of Spider-Man just fine, <laughs> <laughs> alongside uh, such hits as Wheelman. So uh, oh, okay. yeah, big big fan of the uh, as you said, that specifically the aesthetics of the battle screen, the overworld I think is well done, but as you said, thematically bland. And I think that the internet sucks. I think it's terrible. I hate it. Yeah, it's internet-y, but I don't know. I, I think that there are so many things that you could do to portray the internet to make it interesting, and they went the easy route, and it's worse for wear. I remembered the graphics as being quite flat and like single-toned, but when I was looking at it today, writing my notes... There's heaps of gradients and lots of, you know, shading on all of the houses and the curvature that actually makes it, you know, look a lot more detailed than I had remembered as a kid. Um, so I actually think that, you know, the graphics are still quite good for its age, even though you probably need to play at a smaller screen size than you would prefer to get the most out of them. It accomplishes what it's trying to do, and it's not hideous to look at on the overworld, uh, but it's nothing awe-inspiring. Like, yeah. It's just... It's just art, and uh, yeah, it's it's uh, technically proficient, but not not anything amazing. Mm. The character designs, though, you know, will agree on that. Pretty pretty great. <laughs> <laughs> yes, fantastic. let's talk a bit about the music of this game so one of the things that struck me about the soundtrack when i was listening to it in game is that the game boy advance's shitty speakers you know really didn't help uh this game's soundtrack very much but despite that i actually think that in general the composition is quite good each song really accurately kind of portrays the area that you're in. And a lot of it's really upbeat and, you know, fun to get into. And I particularly like things like the battle theme and the undernet deep web kind of areas that really, you know, ooze with personality and atmosphere because of this really well-composed soundtrack. I don't know how you felt about it. Well, you know me and music in general. I did listen to the music. And I thought it was decent. There were some tracks that stood out more than others. Like you said, I liked the battle music. I liked uh, Hades and everything to do with that island. It was very spooky. But on the whole, I don't know, man. It, it just doesn't really do it for me. I, 
I don't know. There's something about this uh, lo-fi music that doesn't inspire me. I I don't. It's hard for me to criticize, but I, yeah, I guess I wasn't emotionally engaged with the music. I thought it was fine. It was better than Banjo Kazooie. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, but then again, what isn't better than Banjo Kazooie? Oh right? my god. Um. I will say, I think that there was, I don't want to call it a missed opportunity because this game came out in 2002, but a notable omission, which is that I didn't like that each of the big bosses didn't have their own theme. Yes. Once again, probably spoiled by Undertale and Fury and these more modern releases, but I've I was looking forward to hearing, you know, desert man themes and flash man's theme and flame man's theme and it's just the same generic boss music except for the very final boss uh so yeah that's something that that feels lacking as someone who's played you know similar more modern takes on these titles yeah i can get behind that um i will say that one of the things that i was expecting from the sound that thankfully didn't manifest here was, you know, generally in these kind of older titles, you get these music tracks that are very short and very repetitive. But this game does a good job of having the tracks be long enough that they don't become annoying and repetitive. As, like, for example, back when we did Ape Escape, you know, that soundtrack drove me insane. Whereas this one, you know, you could kind of listen to it and enjoy it without going mad. Uh, some, sometimes I, they're still, they're, they're certainly more complex, but some of the tracks are still quite short and repetitive. It's, I agree. It's not as bad as Ape Escape, but yeah, for me it was, but by, by the time I was reaching the end of the area, I was definitely sick of the music. I I'd had enough. Yeah. It's a shame you can't really embrace your younger years and enjoy the story because in the final moments of the story, there was this song called Final Transmission that was playing throughout the entire final area that I thought really, you know, elevated the mood and, like, you know, you're determined, you know, little kid character trying to save the world, and I thought it was, you know, really great. I loved it. I mean, i got to say, yeah, I, I wasn't feeling the fundamental story beats, <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> the music wouldn't have made much of a difference. I, I need... I need I need more interesting characters to connect to. And and maybe maybe one of the reasons I struggled to connect to music in general is because I'm more of a narrative guy. And if the narrative and the characters are better drawn out, maybe I can connect to the music better. But uh, for this game, I, it was it was fine. I it didn't really strike me as anything. And I'm sorry for that. I know I know I'm hopeless when it comes to music. Yeah, so overall, I really liked the soundtrack. I thought it did a very good job, despite the very limiting factors of the Game Boy Advance at the time. Um, I still think that some of the tracks are still pretty fun to listen to today, with, you know, some exceptions. Like, there's a couple overworld themes that really, really weren't very good. But, you know, on the whole, I think it's still pretty good. I give it a B for better than Banjo Kazooie. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> So, I guess that brings us to the end of this little discussion. What are your final thoughts, Patrick? I know I know that earlier on you said that, as a whole, you didn't like this game because of the amount of fetch quests. But, you know, throughout the discussion, you haven't been particularly down about any other part. You liked the battle system and you really liked the customization. Do you think... Would you recommend this to people? So, once again, I'm going to have to say no. I... <laughs> 
it's not that there's nothing of value to be had here. And I think that there will be people who are happy to put up with the stuff that I found so frustrating. It's that the essential gameplay that I enjoyed was constantly being broken up and taken away from me for this stupid fetch quest stuff, for me being lost in these boring areas, uh, for me wandering around an area I'd already explored to find an enemy that was sometimes hidden in the upper level of an area and I had to travel through three to four screens just to get to them. And I didn't know they were up there, etc., etc. The point is, I was spending far too much time doing stuff like that and not nearly enough time with the deck building and the battling. For me, today, when I can pl be playing other games and doing other things, it is not worth me putting myself through that in order to get to the good stuff. For some people they will enjoy that RPG traveling around a lot more than me and the game will be fine. But for me, it's not worth the pain to get to the excellent stuff, which is the deck builder and also the good stuff, the battle system. I will say that if this game had more warp points and you could jack in at more points all over the world, that I would be more on board with it. And I think that it's possible that new game, the Eden game, which you keep banging on about, could be the answer to my prayers. And it's certainly something that I'll be looking into moving forwards. But for the masses, would I recommend it? No. I'm sorry, Mega Man. Well, once again, we proved that Patrick Arthur does indeed have shit taste. <laughs> I am going to say that I was trying to be relatively unbiased throughout my criticisms and praise of this game but i mean it's it's really hard to hide i absolutely adore this game this is to me last week when we did quake and patrick you know was absolutely gushing the entire time that's what i was trying to avoid i love this game to death everything apart from the fetch quests is you know superb to me the battle system is completely unlike anything in any other game um, and that alone makes it worth playing for me that's without taking into account the excellent deck building options character customization exploration uh, music and visuals i really adore this game and would absolutely recommend people at least give it a go um, you know, you can get it cheap on the Wii U and you can emulate it relatively easily. Just running around and building up my collection of cards is absolutely a joy. I spent the whole week, you know, doing my day job, not being able to focus on work because I was thinking about all the endless possibilities of card combinations and just getting home as fast as I could to play this game. I finished this game a few days ago. Um, and one of the requirements for the show is that me and Patrick both finish at least the story of these games. But, you know, for me, I, I wanted to keep playing after I beat the story. And there's sizable endgame content if you want to keep engaging, which I absolutely did for hours on end after the story finished. I could gush about this for hours. It is absolutely a recommend from me. Yeah, I want to emphasize that I don't think when when I said the game sucks, I was being I was using hyperbole. The game does have a lot of interesting bits to it. And I think it's one of those games where developers could certainly look to this game from 2002, you know, and get things of value from it. I think that it is interesting. I think it has a lot of cool mechanics. It's but if it's a question of 
you know, is it worth your time to go through to experience these things? I got to say no for me, but I can certainly see if you're a fan of this RPG stuff and, you know, you like terrible stories like James, you could get a lot out of this. So, uh, yeah, it, it's it's got a lot of interesting things going on. It has potential. Doesn't quite pass the mark for me. And uh, that about wraps it up. We'd like to thank you so much for listening to what is probably going to be our longest episode yet. Unfortunately, the technicalities and uniqueness of Mega Man meant that we had to spend a lot of time talking, which uh, we both love doing, which is why it went on for so long. As you can see, James was in love with Mega Man while I had my reservations, although I do admit it has some unique, interesting aspects to it. So uh, we are the Retrospectives Podcast. You can find us at rspodcast.net for our website. Also has lots of cool articles, so please do check it out. And uh, if you're able to, if you can give us a follow on Twitter at R-E-T Podcast, you can get my and James' wonderful thoughts on the world of gaming, which I have to admit comes down to mainly whinging and complaining, but, you know, it is <laughs> what it is. So uh, with that being said, it is time to move on to what we'll be doing for episode 11 in a fortnight. So as the mantle has passed to me to choose a game, I've decided to move away from my shoot people in the head generic uh, generic style, which I normally choose. And we're going to go with a PlayStation 1 game that I played back in the day. It is called Tony Hawk's Pro Skater. Have you heard of uh, Pro Skater before, James? I have played the shit out of the Pro Skater games, so I'm pretty excited to see if they're still fun 15 years later. See, this is exciting because, yeah, I, I don't think either of us have both played a game extensively that we're now revisiting. So it'll be interesting to see what our childhood, how our childhood nostalgia clashes against reality. Well, I haven't played one specifically, so I'm kind of excited about that. I mostly played... Two, three in the underground series so you know it'll be interesting to see if the first game is as good as the rest of the entries in the series it's mainly smashing your face into glass so <laughs> i hope you look forward to that and that's not an exaggeration that's something you actually do but uh enough of that um thank you once again for listening to us uh and uh we will see you in a fortnight see ya